what are the odds of making it to the NFL? Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's the National Football League. The NFL is one of the most popular North American professional sports leagues that consist of the best football athletes who are good enough to make it past their high school and college careers. So in other words, you got to be better than just simply playing Madden on Xbox or flag football in the backyard. Well, according to calculations by the NFL Players Association, the chances that any high school football player makes it to the NFL are about 0.2%. This percentage is based on the statistic that only about 215 of 100,000 high school seniors who play football every year will actually make it to the NFL. In fact, only about 9,000 of the original 100,000 make it to play at the college level. And then, within an even narrower door of a chance, only about 300 of these players make it to the scouting combine, which is that big pool where teams from the NFL draft their players from. Uh, The NFL combine includes tests like the 40-yard dash and a bench press. If you've been watching TV this past week, we see the 2021 draft currently on display. And yet, making it into this pool still does not guarantee that you'll actually play and be put on an NFL roster. At these combines, uh, coaches are scouting out the best athletes, but they're not simply looking for the best athletes ever. They're looking for the best athletes that fit their particular need for that particular season. That means there are talented players year in and year out that get overlooked. They get the no thanks and are sent back home simply because they do not have the compatible skills the coaches are looking for that season. But for the chosen few that are chosen to make it and play in the NFL, not everything is sunshine and rainbows then afterward. For some athletes, you watch some special documentaries on Netflix or YouTube, you'll notice that there are many young men that will go from rags to riches. They'll make it big. They'll grow from the projects to driving a Porsche. And yet, the underbelly of the NFL is that another sad story occurs. There are many that go from riches to rags. One such example was a very wealthy quarterback in the 1980s named Bernie Kosar. A first-round draft pick in the 1985 draft, Kosar became a part of Cleveland Browns NFL history. Meanwhile, he got to live out playing his dream in his home state near his family in Ohio, and he became one of the richest players in his era. Unfortunately, as many professional athletes have learned, friends and family members will take advantage of their wealth. Between multiple investments that backfired, his father swindling millions from him, and Kosar obtaining his own additional personal debts. Kosar had debt crashing down on him. When he filed for bankruptcy in 2009, he owed millions to his ex-wife, as well as to multiple banks 
and former teammates. You see, Kosar went from the mountaintop of an NFL player's dream, but just after a few poor decisions, being surrounded with the wrong people, he experienced the valley of a football player's nightmare. Instead of celebrating touchdowns and a Hall of Fame career, Mr. Kosar over time had found himself sacked, but this time in the end zone of debt, approximately $19 million in debt. As stories like these of professional athletes continue to increase decade after decade, where the repetitive narrative of professional athletes going from riches to rags, Financial advisors and political or football analysts try to give their two cents on why this is a common malady amongst these professional athletes. Just a few years ago, Chris Dudley, senior wealth advisor and director of sports and entertainment at Boston Private Wealth, he wrote this summary statement on the financial demise that will face many professional athletes at some point in their lifetime and career. He said this, quote, At last look, an estimated 60% of former NBA players go broke within five years of departing the league. And by no means are these financial problems confined to the NBA. A reported 78% of former NFL players have gone bankrupt or under financial stress just two years after retirement. As the salaries of professional athletes across all sports grow larger, so too does the number of individuals seeking to prey on their successes and wealth. The reality is, athletes are targets the day they sign those contracts. In other words, according to these analysts, the more that we have, the more stuff, the more toys, the more possessions we have, the more that people around us will tend to want what we have. Mr. Kosar, then, it really isn't an anomaly in that sense. All of us this morning have either envied what others had or we've been envied by those who wanted what we had. Though none of us may have made millions of dollars in an NFL career, unless you didn't tell me that in your membership interview, all of us probably know what it's like to lose something that meant something to you. Have you ever lost a lot of money you wish you could get back? You might be here today and can recall making a few foolish decisions with credit cards or loans, and the debt you've owed still affects you today. Or maybe you've encountered the major letdown with some financial investments that didn't pay off as you had envisioned. Or maybe a family member you thought you could trust was caught stealing from you from years on in, leaving you broke. And you're left standing there on the brink of despair, realizing that years of hard work and planning and saving might have been just thrown in the trash in just a few brief moments. Or have you ever lost trust in people after discovering that following them 
only led you to bitter disappointment in the end? They weren't what they portrayed themselves to be. Losing everything you once held so dear may simply have come by trusting the wrong type of business partners to work with or choosing the wrong type of friends to run with. Or perhaps you looked up to someone spiritually later to find out they were a fraud, living a double life in secret. Losing everything may have happened when maybe chasing a romantic fling with a boyfriend or girlfriend. That really wasn't a relationship based off Christ or godly wisdom. And the flames of passion have grown dim, and you were left hurt, feeling lonely, empty, used, and abandoned. Listen, I think we all, at some point or another, if we just take a good inventory of our life, whether it's this past year or the last 20 years, at one time or another, we have all felt compelled to pursue some type of lifelong dream, a fulfilling job, a successful or respectful reputation among our peers, or we've longed for some deep and meaningful relationship, looking for love in all the wrong places and end up being disappointed in the end. But friends, what if there was a relationship worth giving up everything for? What if there was a purpose and a mission and a task that is of such eternal significance that it was worth giving up all familiar comforts you've always known, like your home or your hometown or living near family and friends or even a successful career? What if you were presented with good news that said you really could discover why you ultimately exist and were put on this planet in the first place? And what if the requirements to obtain this good news and experience the truly good life didn't look like the NFL draft? Instead of the strong talented, and the elite? What if what was required was the total opposite? What if things like recognizing your own personal weakness, coming face to face with your own sinfulness and failures, what if being overwhelmed with the self-awareness of your utter inadequacy for the task given to you were the very ingredients for pursuing the life You were made to live. Well, these questions, I now draw our attention to where we find the answer. Open up God's word to the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 488. Mark chapter 1. This morning, we pick up in our current study, in Mark's gospel, where Jesus of Nazareth has faced two of the most significant aspects of his adult life before his public ministry. Last time in the sermon series, we were looking at Mark 1, 
verses 9 to 13, where we stared at the amazing account of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. After John witnesses and gets to be the instrument, the person that baptizes the very Son of God, Mark tells us that Jesus would be driven, quick, fast, in a hurry, into the wild and dangerous Judean wilderness to go hand-to-hand combat with our ancient foe, Satan. After 40 days of continual opposition and temptation from Satan, Jesus powerfully resists and overcomes the prince of darkness. Jesus shows off here, even before his public ministry officially begins, that Jesus' love for his heavenly Father outweighs any suffering that his Father would ordain him to face. So, as we combine these two historically powerful images here at the outset of Jesus' ministry, looking at who he is and why it matters for us today, let me refresh our memory again. In verses 9 to 11, Jesus identified with sinners in the baptism waters, displaying his humility as the sinless one. In other words, when he was baptized in the river, he wasn't like the hundreds upon hundreds that were confessing their sins. Jesus was the one in whom the Father was well pleased. The sinless one went down into the waters where the sinful ones were confessing their sins. And Jesus does this all at the same time while remaining obedient to his Father's will. Obedient from even the smallest commands that God would have him obey. You see, from the baptism in the Jordan, there at the beginning of his ministry, to the future baptism that he would encounter when he absorbed God's wrath on the cross for the sins of his people. The God-man would stand in the gap for sinners like you and me so that we could be forgiven by our holy and loving God. But then in verses 12 to 13, you're going to look down there with me, it's really brief, we see Jesus remaining perfectly obedient to his heavenly Father. But see, this time he's not in the waters. He's in the wilderness, facing the relentless and crafty attacks of the devil. You see, the temptations Jesus faced in the wilderness were greater than all our temptations combined in a lifetime. He was the sinless one as a man, hungry, alone, and in danger, and was resisting the temptations of the evil one. Mark draws his readers in, and us today too, to show us how Jesus, he's the captain of our salvation. Right here in chapter 1, Mark is already showing us out the outset. He doesn't waste any time. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He looks Satan in the eye, punches him in the grill as he stands upon the authority of God's word. You see, every temptation, every arrow, every distortion, every lie that Satan threw at our great Savior, Jesus came back with, as it is written. Or in other words, 
what my father said. And he conquered and overcame those attacks. Friends, right here at the outset, without wasting any time, Mark shows us how Jesus is the beloved trailblazer of our salvation. He's paved the way for sinners like you and me. Jesus has gone before us, beloved. He's gone before us in our own wildernesses, defeating sin, death, and Satan. And now, by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, from the Father and the Son, now Jesus, through the Spirit, walks with us in the wilderness. The wilderness, he's already been there, done that, and won the battle for us. But how would Jesus actually begin his public ministry? In other words, what was the first sermon as they planted the church that Jesus is going to preach? What was the introductory Bible study on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning that Jesus came into the building with? What message would he proclaim? And who, out of all the masses, would decide to follow him the rest of their lives? Today we pick up in Mark chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 14 to 20 now. Please follow with me. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. And Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Starting here in verses 14 and 15, Mark makes it clear that the alarm clock had went off at the appointed time in heaven. The moment in time where the prophets of old, like Isaiah in particular, had looked forward to from centuries past. The moment in time, that period in God's timex, where the angelic hosts were eagerly watching and waiting to hear and see the King of glory make himself known on earth. When the commissioning service of Jesus Christ would finally commence and John the Baptist's preparatory ministry would begin to fade away in the background. Mark indicates that the oven timer had sounded forth and the Messiah would now be revealed. He says, starting in verse 14, now after John 
was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. If you're new to Mark's gospel, John here is speaking about John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. You can look back in verse 4 to see where I'm getting that from. Uh, John here is arrested. Some of your translations might even say he was taken into custody. You see, John's ministry, beloved, was a significant ministry, but it was a temporary ministry. We learn back in verses 2 to 8 how his ministry was a divinely called. Heaven's stamp of approval was on his resume. A ministry of all ministries to prepare the way for the Messiah. But John knew that once Jesus began preaching, his sermon podcast would eventually be taken off the web. You see, the best preacher that heaven could send and the most powerful and earth-shattering and life-giving sermons was about to hit the Galilean airwaves. John's ministry was only the appetizer, friends, but the main course was about to be served up. Friends, just as an aside, we're not told here in Mark 1 why John the Baptist was arrested or taken into custody. But if you're a good Bible student, and if you're still a member here like 10 years from now, we'll get to Mark chapter 6. Just kidding, we're not taking that long. I will repent if we did that. But if in Mark chapter 6, you'll notice that John's boldness for God eventually got him in trouble with people didn't, that didn't appreciate his ministry all that much. I think there's something even to learn in that just snippet phrase in verse 14, after John was arrested. Friends, I've discovered in the church, everybody wants to be used by God as long as it doesn't cost you anything. Everybody wants to be used of God. Everybody wants to get on stage. Everybody wants a little bit of credit, a little applause for how much you give or how much you serve or how much you've done for the name of Jesus. But very rarely do I ever hear about Christians talking about I'm willing to suffer whatever is required to wave the banner of Jesus. And friends, I think there's something to learn here about John the Baptist's example. Some of the greatest men and women of God that the Lord has used throughout history have also suffered the most for their faith. And even the most fruitful ministries may not appear fruitful in your lifetime. Man or woman, preacher or congregant. Friends, we're just called to be faithful. God determines how much fruit is bore in and through our lives. And one day, friends, Jesus is going to make it plain as day. We're all going to give an account for our life, and there will be no partiality on that final day. All the labors you have ever done in public or in private are going to go through a sifting fire. And if you've built your life, not on the sand, but on the rock with silver and gold, it's going to make it through and there's a reward waiting for you. Friends, keep persevering. Even if no one sees what you're doing, even if no one hears you praying in the prayer closet, the Father hears, the Son is honored, and the Spirit will work. Keep pressing on. 
Friends, John the Baptist is a great example. You might be greatly used of God for a moment, but like a twinkling star in the night, the Lord will remove you so that the Son of God is truly glorified. Friends, the greatest preachers, the greatest authors, the greatest disciple makers are just flickering lights compared to Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Nonetheless, verse 15 indicates the long-awaited Messiah would finally begin his public ministry by proclaiming an important message. Indeed, Mark tells us here, it's a message of good news, listen, from our good God. Listen, God is holy, God is loving, God is righteous, God is all that and more. Come back on Wednesday nights and continue studying the attributes of God in the adult quipping class. But one thing you can bank it on every time, all the time, no matter what's going on in your life, God is always good to his people. It may not feel good, it may not seem good, but even our darkest hour is sifted through good hands. Because we serve a good God, this good news. Mark says the gospel of God. In other words, this good news comes from God. This comes from his heart, this comes from his mouth, this comes from his own authority. A message that would actually sound very familiar to the forerunner for Jesus. Jesus preached, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does it mean to repent? Or what is repentance? Well, truth in advertising, I copy and pasted from two or three sermons ago what I've already told you. Makes my job a little easier, but it'll be on the screen to help you. What is repentance? Well, it's the intentional and decisive choice to change one's mind about a sinful belief or sinful behavior, which therefore leads to a change of belief or change of behavior, excuse me, that is pleasing to God. Yesterday in Chaffee Crossing, us locals hosted the first, at least I was told that, artisan and farmer's market in Chaffee Crossing. One of the activities of the kids was that they could have a bike ride around some of the barracks. Our three kids got on their bikes, got a free helmet too. It's pretty sick, pretty amazing. Our youngest, Titus, was cruising in the back behind everyone. And like a good dad, I just jogged behind. My knees were hurting, my ankles were hurting, but I was jogging. T was enjoying all the different stops along the way. He didn't really care about the race, just kept stopping. He was taking his precious time. But at one point, we were just standing there. And I was just looking at him, and he just wasn't really doing anything. And my foot began to be caught on fire. All of a sudden, I looked down, and what do you think I saw? Look at that. Look at that. You've been there. You know what's going on. All the bikers are coming. You want to look cool, but you're going, this really hurts. So what did I do? Took off my shoe, took off my sock, slapping my foot, and then I banged my shoes on the concrete as if I was trying to kill a poisonous snake. In fact, a cyclist rode by very casually, very calmly, and said, ants, huh? (laughs) He just knew. You know it. You've been there. 
Friends, the same is when God deals with us in our sin. It becomes so painful. It becomes so irritating. It's relentless, like ants in our shoe. It's impossible just to sit there and do nothing about it. We can try to suppress it. We can try to ignore it. Or we can try to hide from it. But the reality is, sin never sleeps. In fact, Genesis 4, 7 tells us to be very watchful. For sin is crouching at the door. And it's desire. What's to devour you? Friends, God will judge us because he's good. He will judge us for all our sins if we are left before his holy gaze in our sin. So friends, whatever Jesus tells us in the word about the seriousness of our sin, we should all pay careful attention to what he is saying. In other words, don't trifle with Jesus. He's not like the... uh, Airline stewardess, you can like, yeah, yeah, I'm paying attention. Yeah, 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 got my man, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. When Jesus speaks, you listen. When Jesus speaks, I listen. When you open the book, God is speaking. And if he says sin is bad, there are all no no small sins to commit because there's only a big God to sin against. Friends, we cannot ignore the Jesus who already knows everything about us. We cannot ignore the Jesus who already knows everything about us. That's why Jesus breaks forth the inauguration of heaven's anointed one, begins his opening preaching series, his opening Bible study by preaching repentance. But he does this not to offer some kind of legalistic option for people who want to just improve their lifestyle, you know, add some virtues to their life, or to feel better about themselves because they don't sin as much as maybe some of their neighbors do. No, Jesus is addressing the masses just like he would be addressing us this morning, conveying that he is more than a preacher. Jesus is more than a kind man. And Jesus is offering more than a simple moral improvement or a moral facelift to your life. Jesus is king of God's everlasting kingdom. Brothers and sisters, do not let a common phrase like that fall on deaf ears. He's not just some Jewish itinerant preacher. He's not just a uh, perfect moral exemplar. He's a sovereign Lord, the king of heaven's armies. Angels bow down to him. Demons tremble of him. Storms cease with one word out of his mouth. Friends, Jesus is not any man's slave. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, but never forget, he got up from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, Jesus may have once laid in a cradle, but make no mistake, Jesus has come to reign as a king. King over his creation and king over his kingdom people. 
to continue rebelling against a sovereign king is treason. To continue rebelling against the king of kings is eternally damning. But King Jesus also says, repent. Did you notice he continues on? And believe in the gospel. You see, repentance and faith are not enemies. Repentance isn't for like serious Christians and faith is for the nice Christians. No. Jesus doesn't slice and dice those terms in the New Testament. You see, repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. Let me illustrate. If you truly repent from your sins and turn to God, you will believe in the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he has sent. The Lord's not sending us any other saviors. He's not sending a plan B or C. Jesus is the only name given from heaven among men by which we must be saved. And friends, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, that the Father has sent your life will give evidence of ongoing repentance from your sin. It will, as John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Friends, repentance and faith is a command to obey. Not an invitation three minutes after the service with just as I am being playing softly in the background. And yet repentance and faith are also sovereign gifts from God to sinners. You see, when you become a Christian, you aren't simply just switching lines. You know, I don't want to go to hell. I kind of want to go to heaven because hell sounds pretty bad. And I want to see granny. I want to see pappy or whatever you call, you know, all your friendly family. No, becoming a Christian isn't simply switching lines like at the ticket booth at a crowded baseball game, you know. You switch from this line to this line, but you just basically keep going in the same direction. No, that's not the picture of salvation according to the Bible. When someone becomes a Christian, our lives do a 180, a turning around, and we go in a new direction. Or as Paul says in Romans 6, we begin to walk in what? Newness of life. Now, do Christians still sin? Yes. If you would have lived with me this week, you would look at your preacher and go, yes, they still do sin. That's not the question. The question is not, do Christians sin? Anyone who's read their Bible for 30 minutes understands that truth. But do Christians, true Christians, spirit-indwelt Christians God the Father adopted into his kingdom, Christians, live a pattern and lifestyle of sin in obvious rebellion to King Jesus with no evidence of bearing fruit that is keeping with repentance? Well, the answer is no. If King Jesus is truly king of your life, then our lives will increasingly look more like he is the one ruling our life. You see, the Christian life is not the sinless life. 
But the Christian life is a life with constant crossroads, constant intersections. God puts us on the path, and each one of us come across busy intersections where we're faced with temptations. Am I going to do it my way, or am I going to do it King Jesus' way? Are my finances under my sovereignty, or are my finances under Christ's sovereignty? Is the church I'm a member of my church, ultimately, or is it Jesus' church, ultimately? Is my thought life only for me to know about, or does my thought life matter to Jesus? Friends, every single body, every person in here is walking along a road. And for the rest of your life, the rest of my life, we face intersections. We face crossroads where we are asked the question, is Jesus king of your life or is he not? Friends, that is the question you need to ask this morning to yourself. It's a question I ask myself very often. As Sinclair Ferguson has once said, this message demands a response. If the kingdom of God has come near and the king himself is already present, life must change. The old lifestyle of indifference to God and his will must be abandoned. Loyalty to the king must be the order of the day. There must be a personal application of the herald summons. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths before him. Your life must become consistent with the fact that a king is present. Friends, we should all be asking ourselves a question this morning. Does my life give evidence that Jesus is king and that he has top priority over every area of my life. Does my life give evidence that Jesus is king and that he has top priority over every area of my life? The good news, beloved, is that a king has come. And the good news is found in Jesus himself. His bodily presence, as his feet touched those dusty roads, inaugurated the kingdom of God beginning to set up shop, visibly and audibly, on the earth. And every time the gospel went forth, repentance and faith were placed on the people's souls. The kingdom of God was claiming who belongs to him, who belongs to the kingdom of darkness. Friends, this good news went forth from Jesus' mouth, and it continues even today, all the way in Fort Smith, Arkansas. It's the good news where sinners like you and I, who are rebels against this good king, can find forgiveness of sins and rest for our weary souls. Friends, if you're here today and you know you're running from King Jesus, you're at the crossroads of a very tempting, alluring choice to choose you and flesh and sin and the world or King Jesus. Friends, let me make the decision easy for you. Turn your back on that way and turn to King Jesus. Look into his face 
and the things of this world, friends, will grow strangely dim. Turn from your sins. Trust in him. Bow your will to his will. Get off the throne of your life and exalt King Jesus as Lord of your life. Friends, to be a slave to a cruel master is tyranny. To be a servant or slave in God's kingdom is freedom. Ask yourself the question, have you experienced the freedom of walking in the light, believing God's truth, and experiencing God setting you free from the bondage of our own selves? That good news is extended to you. Christ can be trusted no matter what crossroads you are walking on. His words are life. His promises can be treasured. And his word is worth waiting upon, no matter how long it takes, because God will be faithful. He is trustworthy. He will always do what he says he will do. When Jesus began preaching, something profound began to happen, though. He wasn't just a king who heralded a heaven-sent message. When Jesus began walking, not in high stages in a pulpit in an air-conditioned building, but walking down familiar places, dusty roads, stinky villages, the kingdom of God began to collide with the kingdom of men. You see, the nation of Israel had largely gone apostate. That means they just went off the rails spiritually. And Jesus came to reconstitute his kingdom people. He began seeking out who would be those who would represent him, those who would represent his message, represent his authority, especially when he would die and then ascend back to heaven. A group of men who would eventually learn from him and even live with him Men who would be discipled by him and men who would eventually live and even die for him. Who were these first disciples? Well, in our opening passage, we are introduced to four of the original 12. Look with me now in Mark 1, starting in verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. And Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Here's the scene. We're out of the wilderness and we're out of the Jordan River. But now we're introduced to another body of water that's going to be talked about a bunch in the Gospels. That was a very prominent place early in Jesus' ministry, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the Sea of Galilee was an inland lake about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. It's also known in the New Testament 
as the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, the Sea of Galilee was also a, a home for a thriving fishing industry, an industry that provided for many families, uh, some of which were actually very well off financially from that fishing industry. Uh, here in Mark's gospel, we encounter King Jesus. Not preaching, though. Not passing out tracts. Not sending out birthday cards, hoping people RSVB to it. No, Jesus is walking along this beautiful, hustling and bustling place where he approaches four young men who are simply just busy at work. The four young men are actually two sets of brothers. Simon, who Jesus would later call Peter, and his brother Andrew. These brothers were originally from a small village called Bethsaida, which was located on the north shore of the lake. But apparently at some point in their upbringing, whether it was their mom or dad, or it's where Peter met his future wife, they eventually settled down in Capernaum. Uh, you'll notice in verse 16, they were busy in their cubicles. They were busy on their Zoom calls. Well, actually, they were just simply casting their nets into the sea. That was they were at work. They were doing their, their deal. They were just getting stuff done. You see, these brothers weren't just simply hungry for fish, like, you know, hey, let's go grab some, some burgers at Sonic or Patrick's, yeah. No, no. They were fishing to provide for their families, for themselves, but this wasn't a hobby. This wasn't something like many of us might do at Terrain Lake or Wells Lake or wherever David says there's an amazing pond I have not touched yet about fish. But if you're looking for fishing, apparently he knows a secret spot. Again, this isn't something they were doing on their day off, shooting the breeze, casting some kind of rod. Well, they didn't have a rod. They had a net. Either way, this was their job. He says very clearly they were fishermen. This was their trade. This was their livelihood. This was their family business that had probably been passed down for decades in their families. And then there was a second pair of brothers that King Jesus would approach by the sea. These were the sons of Zebedee, James and John. We don't know a lot about their dad other than the fact that apparently he was pretty well off financially. You'll notice that his boys are working with their dad in the family business right there in verse 20. And it even says there were hired servants in there. In other words, Zebedee's probably got some deep pockets. He's got a nice 20-foot sea dew or some other type of raft. Either way, he's got some moolah. He's fairly well-known. His fishing business is pretty successful. And we know James and John are later called in Mark's gospel sons of thunder. You know, who wants to name their boys sons of thunder? Sounds like outside linebackers. Love it. Anyway, we'll learn more of why they're called this. They're pretty ambitious and a rambunctious duo, but we'll discover that in due time. As you read through the Gospels, you'll discover that three of these four actually become Jesus' inner circle. Jesus' kind of closest associates. Jesus' small group, if we want to be contemporary. Peter, James, and John. Interestingly, these four young men in this count, you know how old they are? Depending on what sources you look at, most likely from some internal evidence and then just from the nature of being a 
fishermen at that time, they were probably in their late teen years or possibly their early 20s. We know that Peter was married. We're going to later find out in Mark chapter 1. But these are not old dudes. They didn't have like major back problems and gray hair and thinking of getting discounts at the Jewish Hardee's. I'm not sure they would be allowed to eat some of that. But anyway, their, their basic point here is these were young men. These were guys in their junior or senior year of high school like Jack Hannon or maybe Jackson Wing in the early 20s. These were young guys. What's interesting is it seems like these brothers knew each other too. You know, they weren't hooping it up on the court. They were partners in fishing. We know in Luke chapter 5, they were always doing this together. They were partners in business. So the fact that Mark mentions these four men fishing in a close proximity with each other, it really shouldn't be all that surprising. Apparently, Jesus already knew them beforehand. In John chapter 1, Simon and Andrew, they were disciples of John the Baptist. But what did John the Baptist do? That's the Lamb of God. You follow him. My ministry is peanuts compared to him. He's the one you're waiting on. Well, they pieced out, they deuced out on John the Baptist, and they went to follow the Messiah. Friends, they were in the normal routine of life. Waking up for another probably Monday morning or Tuesday afternoon or anxiously waiting till the sun came down or whenever it was throughout a normal week. They were going through their normal, going through the motions, grabbed this gigantic net that probably could have stretched up to 20 feet, had weighted uh, weights at the very end to help the net go down to the bottom, and they would push, and they would pull, and they would flex and show who's got bigger muscles. And eventually, they would grab that net and see what kind of catch they had. Friends, their futures were set. There were plenty of fish in that sea. Daddy had the business lined up. The 401k, the servants, the boat, just keep on. Buddy, you got a bright future ahead of you. It's all taken care of. Your 30-year plan is already written. That is until King Jesus showed up and entered into their lives, ripped up their plans, and directed them on a whole new path. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Two words that would forever change these young men's lives. Two words that would eventually change millions and millions of people's lives throughout the world and throughout history, including the lives of men and women and boys and girls sitting in this room this morning. You see, Jesus didn't stutter when he spoke those words to those young men. He didn't flinch. He didn't hesitate. He didn't even ask their father's permission. They didn't even sit down and have a family discussion with 
Peter's mom. You know what's interesting to me? Jesus doesn't show any trepidation of what these boys' moms and dads would think about his bidding. Jesus simply showed up as the king, looking for the ones he would bid to himself, change their whole life, redirect their future, and in time turn the world upside down for King Jesus. You see, Jesus went right up to these boys, looked them dead in the eye, and said, drop everything you're doing and follow me. Drop your nets. Forget about the fish. Leave your dad and your family and the hired servants behind. Jesus looked at Simon and Andrew, and he looked at James and John, dead into their eyes, the same eyes that John the Baptist had laid on to when he was about to baptize him in the waters, the same eyes that the Father's voice spoke from heaven, the Spirit came down, and it said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It was these eyes that were looking into the eyes of these boys, the soul-piercing eyes of King Jesus. We're now staring into these eyes of the Galilean fishermen. And this time, Jesus wasn't leaving alone. He wasn't going off into some wilderness by himself. This time, he commanded them to come and follow me. Follow me. Come after me. Track me down and keep your eyes on everywhere I go. And he looked at those teenage boys who probably were a little scared. Probably a little reluctant to say bye to mom and dad. Bye to all they've ever known. Not even knowing where on earth Jesus was going. And Jesus said what he said to all his disciples in the Gospels. Don't look back. No man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Keep your eyes on me and I'll take care of your future. You see, Jesus wasn't recruiting a fishing team to try to win some tournament at the Sea of Galilee that day. Jesus was summoning the freshman class that would enter into the discipleship university of King Jesus. So, what would happen to these teenage and early 20s fishermen who left everything to follow him? What was Jesus going to do with them Jesus tells each of them that in following him, he would make them become something that they never were before. Instead of fishing for animals to eat and to sell, they would be fishing for the souls of men and women. Instead of casting this massive weighted net into the sea, as they had done so many times before, and spending untold amounts of time gathering the fish, counting them up, exhausting all their energy. Now Jesus says, I'm going to take all your energy, all your might, all your enthusiasm, and direct you towards something more eternally significant, something more urgent, 
something more life-altering, something that will transform the world, something that's worth giving your whole life to, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to lost and hell-bound sinners. The same gospel that we have responded to by repentance and faith that these young boys had responded to as well. Oh, brothers and sisters, I spent all this time bringing us into the narrative for this reason. Real discipleship always begins with radical abandonment. Real discipleship always begins with radical abandonment. You know, at the end of the day, you want to know what keeps people from truly following Jesus? You want to know what keeps people from just kind of standing on the edge. They want to touch the water, but ooh, 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 ooh. But they never actually jump in. You know what prevents people from following Christ? It's not academic arguments. It's not even a lack of Bible knowledge. What keeps people back from truly following Jesus is self. Me. I. You know, as Christians, we are Trinitarian, right? We believe one God in essence, three in persons. Satan also has a trilogy or a trinity. This is the trinity of Satan. It's called I, me, and myself. I, me, and myself. You see, the defining difference between a spectator disciple who just simply kind of watches, stays on the peripheral, kind of dabs their toe in the water, and a sold-out, fully committed, devoutly focused disciple is really a matter of answering one question. Who is Lord of your life? Who is, I'm thinking about Sandy getting a big plaque right here. Who is Lord of your life? Like every time we come to CCBC, I just want you to stare at that. Who is Lord of your life? Is it you? Or is it King Jesus? You see, the sin of self-preservation is so subtle, isn't it? We like to negotiate with Jesus, don't we? Come, follow me. I'll follow you, Jesus. As long as you don't make me move to another state. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as I can keep this boyfriend I really like. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as I get to keep my well-paying job and not have to give up any comforts in my life. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as you don't make me clean toilets or serve in childcare. I'll follow you, Jesus as long as you give me an easy church to pastor or an easy church where none of the members offend me. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as you don't tell me to love and bless my enemies. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as I don't have to give up my addiction or my secret sin. When you boil it all down, friends, ask yourself this morning, what do you find yourself negotiating with Jesus about? What is it that you keep putting in the blank? I'll follow Jesus under these conditions. 
Friends, whatever you put in that blank is your idol. It is your God. It is Baal. It is the satanic trilogy of I, me, and self. And today needs to be a day it dies. What did Jesus say? If any man would come after me, let him what? Come on, Bible students, preach to me. Let him what? Deny himself. Didn't say deny Satan. Deny my mom and dad. Deny whatever. Deny yourself. When you boil it all down to it, here's the fundamental steps of what it means to follow Jesus. Number one, following Jesus always begins with the white flag of surrender. The white flag of surrender. In other words, you give up. You stop running. You stop playing Christian things. And you give up ruling your life. And you bow down willingly, joyfully, and confidently to King Jesus. Your life is no longer your own. For you were bought with a price. Number two, the second step is receiving his grace and his mercy by faith. Receiving his grace and mercy by faith. It's acknowledging your sin. Friends, Jesus is not impressed with any of us. There's no reason to try to clean yourself up like taking a bath before you get in the shower. That's just weird, and it wastes a lot of water. Friends, Jesus already knows what you're doing. Don't play with sin. It'll burn you. It's like fire. Confess it. Acknowledge it. Turn from it. And then trust that his death on the cross was sufficient to wash all your sins away. Third step. The third step is trusting him with your future, even before you know what the future holds. It's trusting him with your future before you know what the future holds. Again, these young boys did not have a 30-year plan. Guys, we haven't even gotten to Mark chapter 3. Or Mark chapter 6, where he commissions them. He's just telling them, leave every comfort, every competing allegiance. Trust me, follow me. I've already got your future taken care of. Friends, when Jesus died on the cross, and when he rose from the dead, he declared victory over the grave. And guess what that means for you and me? He secured our future with it. See, we might be scared. Afraid, anxious, what our lives might be like next year, next month, maybe even next week. But as Jansen opened up earlier from Romans 8, in Christ there is no condemnation. And at the end of Romans 8, in Christ there is no separation. Your future is in the hands of God. You see, these young boys didn't know what the future would entail. They knew enough about Jesus to bow down to him. They knew enough about their sin to repent and believe in him. And they knew enough about Jesus' goodness, Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, that they were willing to leave everything to follow him. Friends, what are your convictions that drive you for what it means to follow Jesus? How much of your convictions, your beliefs, 
about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him shaped the decisions in your life. How much does your theology, your doctrine, actually practically affect your Monday to Saturday? Author Bill Hull once said, convictions are bone-deep beliefs hammered out in life experience. I know it intellectually. I've experienced it practically. Therefore, it is a fundamental belief that governs my life. Now, brothers and sisters, not every disciple will be called by Jesus to leave their families, leave their businesses, and become full-time pastors or missionaries. But friends, do not read past Mark chapter 1 thinking that you and I are off the hook. Real discipleship will always involve some form of radical abandonment that leads to radical obedience. Let me say that again. Real discipleship will always involve some form of radical abandonment that leads to radical obedience. So for you here, beloved, following Jesus might mean this. Telling your family, your friends, and your co-workers that you're a Christian. And you do so, realizing they may mock you, they may never invite you back to another outing or event again, and they may even disown you for your faith. Following Jesus might mean coming clean by confessing some hidden secret sin to brothers and sisters who can hold you accountable who can help you fight against that sin. Following Jesus might mean for a husband or a wife remaining committed and faithful to their marriage vows, even when they feel like giving up on their spouse. Following Jesus might mean a single person remaining single the rest of their life in order to serve the Lord with more focus and undivided attention for gospel purposes. Following Jesus might mean honoring your mom and dad, kids, and therefore giving your siblings a good example to look up to. Following Jesus might mean leaving the only job or career you've ever known in order to serve the Lord's church vocationally or go on the mission field full-time as a missionary. Following Jesus might even mean volunteering on a service team that pushes you outside your natural comfort zone or even answering the call that God makes evident to serve as an elder or deacon at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. Following Jesus might mean being willing to move to a new city, a new state, or even a new country where there is a greater gospel need. Following Jesus might mean purchasing a bigger home to use for evangelistic strategies, creating bigger space to carve out opportunities for hospitality, in Christian fellowship and giving people a place to stay for a period of time. And on the other hand, following Jesus might mean downsizing your current lifestyle, selling a car, getting a smaller house, and using the excess funds to support a church, to support a missionary, to send a student to seminary, to pay for a pastoral internship, to provide for poor believers in a community, care for widows, care for orphans. Following Jesus might mean you decide to homeschool your kids, using that time to further disciple them with the added concentration of time spent with them. 
But following Jesus might mean keeping your kids enrolled in the public school system, looking to shine as lights in a dark place to share the gospel with those who don't know him. Following Jesus might mean considering foster care or adoption. Following Jesus might mean leaving a big church that's got all the bells and whistles to help a smaller church, like a church plant, to get off the ground and meet urgent, practical needs. Friends, following Jesus may be a million different things. But following Jesus starting today, it might mean humble yourself of your pride and ask for help. Pray for boldness. Be patient. Ask God to bring a mature believer in your life to help disciple you. Friends, CCBC is really here for that purpose. We're not here to entertain, as it's probably become very evident in the last seven months. We're not here to play around. We're to enjoy our fellowship, enjoy our time together, but we are ultimately here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not about being impressive or popular. It's about being faithful and Christ-like. Did you notice that Jesus didn't pick the religiously elite as his original disciples? Did you catch that? Jesus didn't make a beeline for the synagogue. Jesus didn't have some huge billboard to say, hey, do you have a PhD, an MD, a THM? How much have you sat at the feet of Gamaliel? No. He didn't pick the top draft picks that the world would have predicted to establish God's kingdom on earth. As John MacArthur has aptly said, they were ordinary, unexceptional men. MacArthur goes on to say, God's favorite instruments are nobodies. Who's, who's excited about that? Welcome to CCBC, the home of the nobodies. God's favorite instruments are nobodies, so that no man can boast before God. In other words, God chooses whom he chooses in order that he might receive the glory. He chooses weak instruments so that no one will attribute the power to human instruments rather than to God who wields those instruments. Such a strategy is unacceptable to those whose pursuit in life is aimed towards the goal of human glory. Do you remember the Apostle Paul's words? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Friends, that's the attitude we should all want to exemplify with our life. We should all, as moms and dads, husbands and wives, men and women, boys and girls, call people to follow Jesus. We should call people to imitate us in as much as we imitate Christ. Friends, a good challenge for all of us today. Find a good example of someone you see who's really following Jesus with their life and begin to learn from them. Imitate them. 
And at the same time, strive to be that example for someone. You can do that. If you're following Jesus in any measure, any follower of Jesus can learn from you too. You don't need a seminary degree to do that. You don't need a pulpit to do that. You don't need a whiteboard to do that. You just need a Bible, a humble heart, and a focus on Jesus. Friends, what does it mean to follow Jesus? At its core, it's looking to Jesus with your life as king of your life. And it's helping others follow Jesus. If you say you follow Jesus, but you're not helping others follow Jesus, I just don't know what you're doing. Because that's the definition Jesus gave. You follow me, I will make you become what? Fishers of men. And friends, when we don't set a Christ-like example, and when others don't set that Christ-like example as we ought to, because we all sin, we should all be reminded of our perfect example to imitate in the Scriptures. Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we ask that you would teach us what it means to follow your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray if there are any things in our life that are preventing us and hindering us from following Jesus more faithfully, Lord, bring it to light today. Lord, I pray we would humble ourselves and ask for help so that we might be more faithful to you. Lord, I pray at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church that it would be the norm for people to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, teach me as an under-shepherd to do that well. And Father, I do pray that we would even be so bold to tell our children, to tell our spouses, to tell our fellow church members to imitate us insofar as we imitate Christ. Lord, by your grace, do this in us, and may all glory be to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.